The views expressed are those of the speakers and do not necessarily represent the views of the Department of Defense or its components. This is episode four of the DFM series, a part of the For the Zoomies podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Cormier. This afternoon, we have a very special guest and good friend of the Department of Management. She is a 1993 graduate of the Air Force Academy and went on to have an illustrious and still ongoing career as a contracting officer and Department of the Air Force senior leader. Most recently, she served as the commander of the Air Force Installation Contracting Center, where she led a complex operational acquisition mission across multiple MAGCOMs and combatant commands. Currently, Major General Trevino serves as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting at the Pentagon, where she oversees the entire department of the Air Force contracting portfolio. Ladies and gentlemen, Major General Alice Trevino. Thank you, Cadet Cormier. I'm happy to be here. I really appreciate you reaching out because this has been a really um, significant experience in terms of planning and eye-opening in that regard as well. So to get things started, um, what's it like being back at the Academy? Is it, I hear the the adage that it's better to see it in the rear view. Is that <laughs> your experience? Uh, I, well, I'll have to say that I think that um, the time, so I'll graduate in 1993 as I did in uh, past 30 years in June, and definitely hindsight is, you know, it's, it's, I, I can't even almost recall what it was like to be a cadet except for, you know, um, I think even this week is a greater review week and I do still have nightmares about DRs. <laughs> um, I'm not the only one, but, you know, I'm, I'm grateful to have graduated and I'm grateful to have been a graduate of the Air Force Academy. So um, it is nice coming back in a, in a different aspect. And thanks for having me on. And thanks for doing this for your fellow cadets, because I think that's pretty awesome. Um, untapped potential to, to ask questions. Mm-hmm. Well, it wouldn't be possible without you. Um, it's definitely interesting hearing people saying they like to come back here, because every time, I mean, I'm not going to look look forward to coming back after spring break, you know. Got it right around the corner. That's hard. Yeah. (laughs) But thanks for coming on. So what are some of the tools that you lead to, you use to effectively lead such a geographically dispersed mission? So as the Deputy Assistant Secretary for Contracting, I am responsible for 26 senior contracting officials across the department. And that is... Um, you know, it's a monumental task that I could not do alone. I have a wonderful staff. Um, we have uh, great teammates and, and our senior contracting officials or SCOs, uh, we have a, a good collaborative relationship. So, um, I am, I am the functional leader in that chain and contracting specifically and then they also have a command chain so if you have a functional chain and a command chain you have to uh, for a geographically dispersed kind of unit you know a geographically dispersed team you have to um, meet together often you have to have things on the calendar where there's a battle rhythm we have a board of directors Um, we also meet um, over the phone virtually um, or on teams once a month or every six weeks and so it's constant communication but I couldn't do it alone and I wouldn't want to do it alone mm-hmm. shout out to your uh, your assistant uh, lieutenant colonel Meyer for helping set all this up yes. um, there must be a lot of trust that goes into 
such a dis, uh, geographically dispersed mission where you, I mean, you're saying that you're meeting with these people. Um, what's it like having to put and trust people with such, you know, gargantuan missions? Well, I think, so one of the philosophies that I kind of live by is, is empowerment and trust mm-hmm. and empowerment. I think some people think that empowerment is okay. I'm empowered. Now leave me alone. I never have to come back. There's no oversight. Mm-hmm. Um, but, but true empowerment is I teach you what to do. Now you're fully capable. You're a, you're a capable airman or a capable guardian. And now I can trust you because I've helped you. And then I can leave you alone. You're fully empowered to execute whatever task it is or whatever vector you've received. And then you come back periodically with just, here's where I'm at. Here's my status. Here's where I'm running into obstacles. And here's where I need your help, ma'am. Um, so that to me, uh, empowerment and trust are intertwined. Okay. Yeah. You, you speak a lot about change agency and, um, empowering the people below you. Um, what are some of the difference you see between being a change agent as a second Lieutenant and a senior leader? So there's a lot, there are differences, but I think there's a lot of similarities. And when I, so I laugh about this a lot. I have, I have a a leadership philosophy on change agency or change agents. And when I, when I tried to look back, like, well, where did that come from? It's actually from the Air Force Academy. So organizational behavior class, um, the change agent theory, Lippitz, Watson, and Wesley, 1958. And they, they brought up this, this theory of change agents. And what they were, were you brought in outside change agents into an organization when you needed to make a big organizational change or a big you-fill-in-the-blank change on your business strategy or how you were executing or, as I said, fill-in-the-blank. And these change agents, they would come in. You, you would identify what the change is, identify what the root cause are, um, you know, who were your key players and stakeholders that had to execute the change. Change agents would come in as mentors, as coaches. They would help guide. Um, they would go after whatever the plan was to execute, and then everybody would have their part. And then at the end, in this change, the agent theory, is then they would leave. Those change agents would leave the organization. And over time, like a consultant would come yeah, they, and leave. they were like okay. consultants and they were empowered to lead the change, but they left and they weren't really a part of the actual change over time. You know, culture change. You've, you've probably heard, you know, culture eats strategy for lunch. So if That's you right. want to change your culture, um, you kind of need to be vested. You need to be bought in. You need to have ownership. Mm-hmm. So my theory of change agents that, you know, which is different as a second lieutenant, um, different as a senior leader, I kind of, I'm more focused on the commonality of it. And when I talk about um, what it means to be a change agent, everybody looks at me and, and it, it, what does that mean? And so I came up with a change agent um, theory and um, I actually procured my own pins. They're stars and they're in the shape of a star. And so it's a five-sided star. And then um, simplify it to an acronym of STARS. And so the S is read the strategic documents. You have to understand what your strategic leaders want. Mm -hmm. And then the T is to take on the initiatives and goals of your senior leaders in those strategic documents. The A is alignment. You have to be aligned. You have to be rowing in the right direction. You have to be rowing in the same direction. Because if you're not 
going in the same direction, A, you're either going in a different direction, uh, or B, at worst, you're being um, not just ineffective, but inefficient, and we don't have valuable resources to waste. So alignment is really key. The R is reaching out you to your internal and external stakeholders because everybody has both. You have members of your team, even here in you know at the at the Air Force Academy. Um, you you would I would probably say like in your squadron, your internal stakeholders would be your squadron mates. Your external stakeholders could be everybody outside of the academy, or it could even be somebody in a different squadron. Mm-hmm. But it's identifying who who are who do you need to communicate with. Um, you communicate more closely with, you know, people across the hall. Um, second lieutenants will communicate more closely in contracting with the people that are in their flight. But if you're not talking to people in other flights or people outside of your squadron or your agency, you're you're losing out on opportunity for information sharing, um, data exchange, um, you know, what's the latest thing out there, and staying on the cutting edge of innovation. So that's why the R is so important. And the last S is to share your story. And that's kind of what we're doing here today. But if you can't share your story, if you don't know the power of the 30-second elevator speech, the elevator rides over and you're gone. Mm-hmm. And so that's that's how kind of I start out with change agents. And then I build upon that as as we go progress through the ranks. Mm-hmm. I Before I did any research on your career, I d- had no idea what a change agent was. I had never heard of the term. Um, and shout out to Captain Sapita before um, I was getting ready for this interview. He gave me a little book. It was called the change. I, I think I still have it in my bag, but it's called the change agent. And it's a fable. It's a, it's not a real mm-hmm, story mm-hmm. or a true story, but um, it was like a corporate st- fictional story where it 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 sounds like the basis of changing culture is just making the people within the organization better people. That's a very broad way to put it, but yeah, you're just making people want to listen to their peers more, not be afraid to share their ideas more, having more humility and um, making sure that aligns. You kind of, um, I read a book over the summer, Good to Great. Mm-hmm. And good. where... Uh, hedgehog, hedgehog principle. <laughs> yes. Uh, the part that it kind of relates is making sure that the right people are on your bus yep. in the right seats. That's kind of where I, yep. I make that connection. Yeah. So when you're... And the wrong people either get off the bus or change seats. Yes, ma'am. <laughs> How can you be a change agent as a second lieutenant with quote-unquote little power as being on the lowest point of the total pole? So... I think um, as a second lieutenant that comes into an organization, you actually have a lot of power. And the power that I see is that you have a different perspective as you come in because you're going to bring different experiences. And when I go into any squadron and I do an all call, I actually ask, okay, who, show of hands, who here has more than 15 years of experience? Um, Who has more than 20? Who has more than 30? And show of hands. Okay, uh, we went over 15. Who has between 5 and 15? Who has between 10 and 15? And you got the show of hands so you know who's in, in the medium kind of range. And then who has less than five years? And all three of those groups can learn from each other. And so you don't come in, you're not powerless. You have a, you, you are, you may not have the rank, but to me, leadership is how we influence each other it's not necessarily rank specific Mm -hmm. i mean i know i'm i'm talking to you as a major general but 
to me, it's not about rank. We all contribute. We all have something to add value to, and we, we all have the ability to make it better. And as a second lieutenant, you're going to come in and say, why do we do it that way? Um, why don't we do it this way? And you'll learn from the more senior folks that are in the squadron. They say, well, we tried that before, and here's why it didn't work. And then you can come back and say, well, I think it might work if we did blank. Mm-hmm. And so there's power at all levels. There's the ability to influence at all levels. And and I think rank, rank agnostic um, you know, is kind of a, an approach, and we learn from everybody, civilians, officers, and enlisted. So um, you're pretty powerful. I mean, may not have the rank yet, but it'll come over time. Mm-hmm. While you were saying that, actually, it brought – I was having this conversation with my brother. We both listened to a Lex Friedman podcast. Are you familiar? Um, and the guest was the, a former IBM CEO and she was talking about how she would rather hire new ambitious minds rather than people with 40 years of experience because they usually have the ego that this is what's been done for 40 years. This is how it needs to continue. But the new minds are the ones that will incite change and, um, they'll adapt to new things and, you know, think of and new I ways to I don't even think it. it has anything to do with age. It has, it's the ability to be open-minded. Mm-hmm. And that, that is, there's no age there. There are people who have the propensity to be more open-minded and even close-minded at any age. Mm-hmm. So, you know, I, when she says that, I kind of hear, I'm looking for open-minded professionals. Mm-hmm. So how do we know if change is good or bad? I mean, obviously, we have statistics and results that we can, you know, this is objectively better. But in sort of a culture sense, how do we how do we decipher? So the I'm always looking for, you know, change, not for change sake, but productive, positive and constructive change. And I think when you your aims are to make it better, to make it more productive, um, to make it, you know, a more constructive environment, I think you almost inherently know that you that's a more pro than a con. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that the bad change will be when you didn't consider the negative consequences before you made a decision, and then it happens, but the change is not what happened. That the change didn't cause the bad outcome the change wasn't well thought out of before. You mm-hmm. didn't do, you know, your root cause analysis. You didn't come out and identify the true cause of the problem. Um, that's the worst thing to me when people come in with a, well, my gut's telling me this. And you do need to trust your gut, but data-driven decisions are based on data. And as long as you know you, that your data is clean and clear and where it came from, um, it can help drive you in a better direction versus just going with your gut. So um, positive change is what I'm always looking for. And before we make any monumental changes in an organization, especially as large as ours, um, we try to get feedback from as many people as possible. We try to go through the ramifications, the unintended consequences, mm-hmm. and bear those out. And then, you know, manage the risks. Um, we are not trying, there isn't, you know, we can't avoid all risks, but we want to mitigate them. And that entails that we have to talk about it beforehand. Mm-hmm. It sounds like even on a broader scale outside of an institution, but as a society or a country, you'd be a big proponent of learning history. I would you know, be. learn yeah. from our past yes. mistakes. Yes. Yeah. And I, at the academy, I was a horrible history. <laughs> um, that was not one of my um, best classes. I think I got a B minus. 
Um, and, but I loved it. And, uh, and, uh, you, you, the, the parables or reading, you know, we, we, some of the, um, the books I connected with most weren't, um, regurgitating facts, but they were a story. Um, like I think it was, um, was it the, um, uh, why am I thinking? It's a civil war movie about the angels. Did, did, did you I, I'm read not that very uh, okay. well read. Sorry. So, um, well, it's telling you the story of, of through all the generals. And so okay. you get to hear it, you know, while they're in battle. And so I think those, those types of stories as we're reviewing history always, always resonate more with me. Mm-hmm. So I know you want to speak about contracting. Um, what do you think cadets need to hear about contracting? Maybe it's dispelling myths or lay a guideline between, you know, different management, um, professions what would you like to say about contracting okay well so when I first graduated from the Air Force Academy and had to make my preference um, checklist I did not know what contracting was and and so now after 30 years I have been forced to put my money where my mouth is I need to do my own 30-second elevator speech and so contracting um, and contracting professionals um, we have officers enlisted and civilians uh, there are 750 officers that are in contracting. We have about 1,400, 1,350 enlisted professionals that are in contracting, and we have approximately 6,000 civilians. So we work together with all, you know, the total Air Force. Um, we also have reservists that have done contra- uh, contracting work, and they come back and, and do that in their reserve potential. Um, but one of the main differences, like, for instance, between program management and contract management is a program manager is is going to be responsible for the cost, schedule, and performance of that program, uh, a certain weapon system, whatever it is, you know, an F-22, an MQ-9, um, you know, uh, it could be even something smaller like a, uh, a business system. And then the contracting manager or contracting officer is the professional that is responsible with unlimited dollar warranted contracting authority to sign that contract. So they work together with the other members on their team, logistics, engineers, um, your your, uh, fiscal responsible um, folks that are on that team, and then, of course, program management and contract management. So you need the entire team um, that are working on big weapon systems, but in contracting, we also have, in addition to systems contracting, we have operational contract and that is an operational contract is at an operational base. So I, when I was here, we call it Ops Air Force. You go out and you see you, you know, you spend mm-hmm. a couple of weeks at an Ops Air Force base. Well, you would have contracting professionals at every single installation in the United States Air Force. So you'd have 83 um, lo- possible locations, um, including overseas in, in um, USAFE or in PACAF that you could go to. Um, including all of the locations in the United States for every single major command. And uh, program management is is at um, their staff positions, but primarily in Air Force Material Command and, of course, in the Space Force. Um, but the contracting professionals, we serve all of the major commands. Um, so that's one of the unique differences. And, and, of course, the last one that I like to highlight on is being able to deploy um, contingency contracting officers, we deploy, uh, we have a, a global warfighting mission, and we will deploy downrange either, you know, um, for a, a, a surge in something that's happening, um, if we're supporting uh, a Ukraine effort in, say, AFAFRICOM or USAFE, 
um, lots of deployments in Central Command. I've been on four deployments. I went to Zagreb, Croatia as a captain. I went to Sibomon uh, uh, within one month after 9-11 and built a base from scratch from, from literally dust to tent city hmm. um, in seven days. And as a lieutenant colonel, I worked in the, I did a career broadening and I worked in the CENTCOM Deployment Operations Center. And I was responsible for intra-theater airlift for the entire AOR and the AFRICOM AOR. And, and then my last deployment was a year as a senior contracting official in Afghanistan before we withdrew. Mm-hmm. So um, as contracting professionals, we get the ability to deploy overseas. So very fast paced. Deployment, it sounds very interesting. Um, I had, I guess, this is kind of leading into um, what's possible in a deployed environment, but I spoke to, shout out to Cur- Colonel Karen Landale. She she gave me a little lowdown on contracting before I've had the, the pleasure to speak with you, but she told me when she deployed to Afghanistan and um, just kind of how impactful it was for her to interact with locals mm-hmm. um and that kind of brings me to one thing that kind of it, it was notable when i was looking through your resume was that i didn't really understand it and i'm kind of tying it to one of the things that i saw in the 2018 nds that you helped draft um when i saw that you helped spur economic growth in Afghanistan when you were there. I didn't know how that works Mm -hmm. because I didn't know that you were trying to buy locally. I didn't know how that the mill, I thought everything was kind of brought over in a big cargo plane and just unloaded, but I didn't know that you were able to buy locally and and therefore spur a lot of economic growth and leave the Afghan people better off than when, before you came. Can you speak to that at all, what it was like to work there? Yeah, so it's um, the economic impact of when we deploy downrange, you can't carry everything with you because there's not enough organic aircraft. There's not enough C-17s. It's it's physically impossible. Um, Even when I was in Kuwait uh, in the CD dock, our number one priority at that time was to get our MRAPs out of theater because they were moving them from, you know, from from uh, Iraq and then they were coming down to Kuwait and then some of them different versions were going to Afghanistan but the majority of them were going back um, to the United States um, to the army and so um, you you are not just the military arm so I know um, taking a poli sci class um, you think about the instruments of power that we have and there's diplomacy, there's information, there's military, um, there's economic, there's financial, mm-hmm. there's um, intelligence. Those are the big minst- instruments of warfare. And we always think in uniform, oh, that's just military. But the economic and the financial impact of being in theater and infusing money into the local economy, it also it, it helps who our host nation partners are by employing local uh, civilians and vendors. It also reinvests money into their economy for their companies, and then it produces goodwill, which is very helpful for Department of State, uh, not just Department of Defense, and of course, um, you know, everything that we do for the national security mission. Mm-hmm. 
when I was speaking with Major Kelth about it, he said it also makes the locals appreciate um, foreigners being in their land much more because Absolutely. they're actually bringing something of value. They're not just kind of impeding on their own kind of sovereign land. Mm -hmm. So that's a decision that I have to make because like we were speaking before, acquisitions is kind of yeah, on I'm my trying mind. to recruit you. <laughs> I'm trying to recruit you, Andrew. We'll see. We'll see. I got two more years to make that decision. That's right. But you're, you're doing a very good job at it. Um, kind of shifting gears a little bit. What have been some of the bigger rewards um, of your career? Bigger rewards of my career. So I have had so many. I have I've had such a blessed career. Uh, when I graduated from the Air Force Academy, and I and I listened to your podcast, I had listened to some of the other ones that you taped, and thank you. And I, I think um, you had a former contracting officer on, and he separated after five years and went into his consulting business. Yes. And and I too, when I graduated the Air Force Academy in 1993, I thought I would stay for five years and that I would separate. That would have been in 1998. Um, but what happened to me is, uh, you know, in, in my 30-year career, I've had 17 assignments. And my first assignment, which would have normally been three years, I, it kind of got cut a little bit short. So I moved early. I moved at the two-and-a-half, two-year, two six-month point. And I went from a systems contracting where I worked on base telephone systems. I actually, one of my first contracts was to install the base telephone switch here at the Air Force <laughs> Academy. So when you said, what does it feel like coming back? So I had come back within a year, and that was surreal. I tell you, that was surreal, coming back a year after graduation. That, that might have been a little bit too close, but it was still, um, you know, it was still a memorable time. And when I moved, I, I got stationed in San Antonio. And it was really cool because in contracting, they, you, you get sent to a lot of classes. So if you're a lifelong learner, if you like learning, if you like challenges, if you like solving them, um, acquisition strategy, everything that we do in contracting is based on the federal acquisition regulation. And what's cool about that, if it's not in there, it doesn't mean you can't do it. And mm -hmm. so, so sometimes... Um, it not being said that thou shall not, it means that, oh, I have the ability to be creative and work with my team to mm -hmm. execute this acquisition strategy and try something new and learn from it and experiment. And I've always been, you know, one to experiment. I fail a lot. I fall down. I fall backwards, but I pick myself up and I learn something from it. And my goal is to not repeat the same mistakes. Mm -hmm. So those have been very rewarding. But after I went to San Antonio, that was my first deployment. And so... In 1998, I could have gotten out, but instead I started my master's, so I had an active duty service commitment, and then I deployed to Croatia, Zagreb, Croatia, and I was working a stabilization force mission for NATO, and so I, then I got exposed to NATO, and so I was learning the whole time, and then, you know, I got this experience outside of San Antonio and got to work with sister services. I worked with the Army and the Navy, and I worked with NATO officers um, from England and Norway and France, and it was just, it was like, wow, I didn't, it, you know, it wasn't just my little office back in San Antonio, or it had been my little office at Scott Air Force Base. And so I came back from there, and this is probably one of the most rewarding things is the only reason I deployed is because somebody else could not deploy because they had a medical problem. Mm -hmm. So I got tapped to deploy, and then when I came back, 
I was at my, again, two-year mark. Um, wasn't quite, I was in the window to select my next assignment. I knew I was going to stay more. I was going to go beyond 1998. And they, the assignments officer team called me and they said, what would you think about going to Izmir, Turkey? Hmm. And I was like, Izmir, Turkey? And I was lucky because there was somebody in my office who had been stationed there and they were like, go, absolutely go. <laughs> and that location, which doesn't, it, it still exists. We have a very small presence there now, but at the time we wore civilian clothes. And so as a captain, I was an officer in charge in contracting, you get, expo- you get leadership, um, opportunities very young. Um, and so I was the officer in charge and some of my peers had not even, you know, been in charge yet. So I was leading a team. And the only reason they selected me for that is because I had been to Croatia and I was familiar with NATO. Mm-hmm. And so the, second rewarding thing was not just being asked to go but that the vacancy that had presented itself was because someone had left unnecessarily Mm -hmm. and so it was like a hot job must fill your moving in two months versus I was waiting for the next assignment cycle Mm -hmm. so I moved in 1999 and I went to Izmir Turkey I, I lived there on the economy and while I was there I met my husband he was in the air in the army and the coolest thing about it is the Izmir Turkey assignments, they were 15-month assignments. And when he came to Turkey, he was also on a 15-month assignment. But the Army did something different. And when he arrived, he said, they said, oh, we're sorry, you're actually here on a two-year assignment. <laughs> so he stayed longer, and that's the only reason I was able to meet him and actually date him. So we've been married for 23 years and had all of those things not put into place. I wouldn't be not where I am today I wouldn't be married to my husband Ray and and I wouldn't then have found a love of contracting sounds like a lot of things kind of spontaneously building off of each other um one thing I want to go back to when you were talking about interpretation of the contracting law book I forget the name of it yeah um I've spoken to contracting officers and that I think from what I understand from their anecdotes is that that can make and break a team is that some acquisition officers might be wanting um, the contracting officer to make something happen, but the contracting officer isn't willing to, I don't know, I, I don't know if quote unquote bending the rules is the right way to put it, or just interpreting the book in a certain way that's still feasible, but it's never been done before. Um, can you speak to any experiences that you might have had in that situation? Oh, yeah. I, th- I think that um, contracting professionals are challenged by that all the time. And the longer that you stay in, um, the more innovative you can be because you, you kind of know the rules. Um, you, you start out compliance-based. You need to know the rules before you can be creative within them. And it helps so much. So in, in if we're just talking a, a major weapon system, when you have the program manager, the contracting officer, and you're legal, and you're all on the same page, you can make magic. Mm-hmm. When you're not on the same page, it kind of goes back to the stars I was talking about earlier, the A, alignment. If you're mm-hmm. not aligned, you might be moving in the same direction. But I think that communication is key. Is like why If you're trying to move faster... And you want to do it this way, you need to have a conversation. It, if it's not allowable and it's not legal, 
we need to find a better way. But coming up with that solution collectively and collaboratively, you usually have better outcomes. Mm-hmm. Um, I, as a contracting professional, do not I, I do not like to say no. I do not I never want to be known as the house of no. Um, I will lay out the law and, and the regulations, but it's together where we can find that 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 space where we can kind of innovate from within and make magic together. And if it's not no, but yes, but. Mm-hmm. yes but we have to do this and and here's another way so it's really even as a leader as a as a second lieutenant when you graduate and even here as a cadet you have to offer options and it's mm-hmm. providing those recommendations which goes back to that empowerment and trust you have to you know here's here's three courses of action and maybe the decision maker is going to make a hybrid approach but they'll use that information from all of those courses of action and come up with the best optimal solution mm-hmm I don't know if this is a reach, but um, I guess a connection I'm trying to make is I listened to a podcast where Lee Ellis, um, he was Cy John's good friend. He actually was shot down um, two days prior to, or he he ejected from his disabled aircraft before, two days before Cy John did. And um, he was telling stories about being in a prisoner of war camp in Vietnam and I guess relating back to this book of rules, he had the code of conduct Mm -hmm. and there's a difference in all the people that were there in these camps, how they interpreted the rules. Some really wanted to have a really strong um, interpretation of it and follow it to the T where those people usually ended up getting tortured more and divulging more information more. Whereas the people who maybe still upheld the code of conduct and stayed honorable, but I mean, you're getting tortured. There's only so much the body can take. They were to lie to the Vietnamese just to get out of it. They, they saved themselves and without divulging as much information. So it, in terms of reaching an optimal outcome, mm-hmm. it seems like an interpretation of um, rules should be fluid in, in how you implement them in a, circum, a certain circumstance. I don't, was that a reach? Or yeah. do you see well, any? Well, I, I would say, so there's law and there's regulations and there's policies, mm-hmm. and policies can be changed. Laws take longer to change, but they can be changed as well. I mean, any law that we have can be changed by Congress, working with Congress, working with, you know, the administration. But what I, what I find is it's not, there's a lot of areas where there's a gray area and, um, what you're kind of talking to is like this rigidity mm-hmm. and you can be so rigid that you break literally. And I think in, in contracting and acquisition, we, we have so much pressure, um, to go fast. So, you know, general Brown accelerate change or lose. And, you know, that's why my change agent kind of philosophy, it aligned perfectly with where he was going already. Mm-hmm. Um, and it and so I didn't have to change the philosophy at all. We just we just spread the word more. But if you don't understand what you need to change and, and positive constructive and you're so tied to the past or some rigidity that that cannot, you know, that flexibility is not even, you know, welcome into the room. 
I, I think you do make bad outcomes, but talking about it and then you're coming to mutual solutions, shared solutions, it, it gives you that agility that we need to go faster, to be stronger, um, to make better acquisitions, to go fast, you know, again, faster mm-hmm. um, and more lean. And, and then, of course, affordable execution is, is near and dear to my heart because when we're affordable, we have more money to spend on other weapon systems that we need. Mm-hmm. So on the flip side of that question, what have been the major challenges of your career? So major, I mean, I, I have a bad time answering this. I'm a, I'm an incurable optimist. <laughs> and every, I, I have to say that every single challenge that I've ever been through now on the, cause I'm made it on the other side, they've all taught me something. So not, I don't see challenges in a negative way, but mm-hmm. they're all learning opportunities and I have learned a lot. Yeah, it I sounds mean, like you handle adversity in the correct way. <laughs> I hope so. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I, I can't judge. I'm just some kid. But <laughs> no, no. We, we remember, age doesn't matter. So. Mm. But do, I guess. All right. So, what has been something that has taught you the most? What has taught me the most? So, I think the most, um, really, you know. I'll, my last assignment, um, I'll just go there. Um, the you know I was there at Air Force Installation Contracting Center for four years, and one of the biggest challenges because I was um, there for four years, um, even though we had you know I was the stability right. We had new leaders coming and going, but I was the co- the commander for four years, and so um, tying and holding on to the change agent leadership philosophy and not making it become trite or outdated and making sure that I changed as well. Mm -hmm. So being able to message it, being able to help others, you know, understand it and embrace it. And I've read a lot about change management and you have to identify certain people. You have fast followers. They're like, no matter what you say, I'm on board. Let's go. Why didn't we do it yesterday? And then you have other people, they're naysayers. They're like, "Eh, I don't know. I don't really want to do that. And then you have pessimists and they're like, well, tell me why I should do that. And they're going to, and then you have pragmatists. Well, you explain to me why we should do that. And why is it better than this? Mm -hmm. And so the challenge was really identifying who are you dealing with? And then you have saboteurs. And if you don't identify your saboteurs, and there's just like the good to great, if you don't get them off the bus, mm-hmm. they will be sabotaging you from the inside. And so we didn't, we were lucky. I mean, that was not a big challenge that I faced, but just identifying where people, you know, how on board were they? Um, how opposed to the change were they? Um, did I have to spend time more on somebody to helping them understand the why and you really have to have it's individual to each person um so that's probably one of the biggest challenges i faced because it was for the command and then leaving it better for my successor so that he had a good starting point and then he could instill his own leadership philosophy but that change agent mentality would always be there because it's a mindset it's kind of like a way of life and you can take it with you anywhere Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. I I never really considered dealing with personalities because I guess I haven't been in a position to do that yet. Hopefully, I don't want to say hopefully it's not too much of a challenge for me, but challenges seem to, if it's handled correctly, be um, like a positive uh, force forward. Um, 
So I, I appreciate that perspective. I've never heard anyone give that answer to that question before. Um, what are you looking for from a newly commissioned second lieutenant? Kind of covering the base for all the, the cadets out there. So my, my advice to new second lieutenants, um, and, it's, and it's kind of what I've learned the hard way, is get comfortable with being uncomfortable. <laughs> and that's hard to embrace. It's you can not just expand your comfort zone, but just practicing it like something that when you graduate from the Air Force Academy, you will be confident and competent, but you'll build upon both of those for the rest of your career. And the competence, especially in contracting, is it's difficult, but it's worth it. It's not something that you can learn in three years and be like, look, I'm perfect. I've been in for 30 years and I'm still learning. You know, regulations and laws change all the time, how we institute them. Mm -hmm. But getting comfortable with being uncomfortable, um, adding value, because you do, you, you do matter. I mean, one day I'm happy. I'm like, yes, a new person is coming to the organization. Let's mm -hmm. make them part of the family, part of the contracting family. And you're adding value because you have a different set of eyes. And so use those set of eyes. But when, you, when people ask you to volunteer, it's very easy not to raise your hand. But I think it, especially some people don't raise their hand because they're uncomfortable or because they don't think they can do it. I would say do it. Mm. Just try. And no matter what, even if you fail, you're going to learn something from it. And so I'm a huge proponent of experimentation. And I just I, I offer it all the time, you know, experiment. Hey, let's try that. Why not? Mm -hmm. what, what could happen? Um, and then just find out. It sounds like it goes back to that uncomfortability, the first point you made, that if you're trying something new, you're ending up in... In a better place? Yeah. Better I mean, place. this that was this process of starting up a podcast. I had no prior experience editing or recording, scheduling, any of this, but... But you were interested. Yeah, yeah. and it... Decisions are made by those who show up. Mm-hmm. <laughs> that's... I, I've never heard that, but that's awesome. That is awesome. Sorry, I cut you off. You said you had... Was no, there another point you made? No, showing up. Just okay. Keep showing up. Awesome. Well, um, I was going to ask if you have any advice, um, but to the cadets, I don't know if that would be the same on the very, on par of very similar. Center. Okay. And then my last one, um, I would say have fun, <laughs> just have fun. And that's hard. Um, so I was talking earlier to a group of cadets and I, um, kind of said that the five minute brain break is something I would introduce you to, especially during finals or greater reviews. A five-minute brain break can totally reset. Um, you know, there is no perfect balance. There is no, okay, I'm going to do, you know, people are always looking for a work-life balance, like th thinking, thinking that there's this perfection involved, like 50-50 or 75-25. You can't do that. There will always be times that you have a surge capacity. You're going to have to write a paper. You might have to pull an all-nighter. Just fill in the blank. Something's going to happen here while you're a cadet. But a five-minute brain break to reset your attitude and just your resiliency is is it's invaluable. And I do it all the time. I force I force um, my uh, my deputy and my chief. We go on walks, and so instead of just sitting down to do a sync meeting, we'll go on a walkabout. And so sometimes when you're writing a paper, you're like, no, I'm so I'm so into this. I got to finish it. I got to finish it. I got to finish it. But a five minute, um, especially if you are 
um, hitting a wall or you're stalled or you can't retain what you just read three seconds ago, take a five-minute brain break, reset your brain. Um, and it's usually by talking to someone, making a personal connection. Mm -hmm. So if you have time to call someone or go visit someone, you know, whatever that is, go take a walk in nature, go look outside. I mean, the Air Force Academy is beautiful. I will tell you, I think I was here for three months before I saw the mountains is what I feel (laughs) like. Oh, there's mountains here. Look at that. It's beautiful. What's happened? But taking that time, um, to just really be grateful for the moment and then, uh, make it count. Mm Mm-hmm. Oh, I I recently, um, with my English professor yesterday, actually, Dr. Lasky, we, I asked for EI. He's like, yeah, meet me out by the air guards. We're going to do like a walk and talk. That's cool. And it was awesome. You learn more that way. Yeah. Because a guard is down. You're not totally focused on the book. You're actually absorbing. Yeah. And um, another thing that came to mind when you were talking about work-life balance, um, over NCLS, I had the pleasure of being paired up with um, Ted Colbert. Um, he's yeah, Boeing. Boeing. Mm-hmm. Um, and one of the people on his team, um, Kayla McClellan, she said, "It's with him. It's a work-life compromise." And that was the first time I had heard it worded that way. And um, I think it's an interesting way to put it because you are, if you leave, it, if you lead an extremely busy life, you have to choose. It's not a matter of okay i have free time what am i going to do with it it's there's no free time you have to pick and choose what mm-hmm. you will do you gotta schedule it mm-hmm. put it on your calendar make it make it meaningful mm-hmm. and then make time for it um for me i found out and i know you didn't ask a question on this but i used to work out at um, lunchtime and then i found out that I, c- I didn't have enough time at lunch to work out and so i'd be like oh, i'll work out at the end of the day and then i found out well i couldn't even work out at the end of the day so I get up at four in the morning, I go to sleep at eight, and it's the first thing I do. Mm-hmm. I mean, I eat because I can't work out on an empty stomach, but I work out, and then I don't have to worry about it the rest of the day. And people are like, what should, you know, why are you so happy? And I'm like, because I already have my workout done. <laughs> <laughs> I had to start doing that, too, because... It's worth it. Yeah. No, I um, I actually, I had to give something up and switch around my schedule. Right. I, I had to... Sorry to all my clients out there, but I had to stop cutting hair recently. I was a barber within the dorms, and a lot of people are angry with me. But it was something I had to do to pursue this actually more, but also rearrange my schedule where I I go to the gym before school. um, You need that. You need that for um, mental, emotional, and physical. Mm -hmm. So I I cut you off. um, If you had any advice for cadets like within the academy, if there is anything else, or if you would just – Anything Similarly. else when that the the last bit of advice I would say is you are only here for four years. And while that might seem like a very long time, um, the more that you invest in your relationships, um, the better. And and I would say uh, I I still after 30 years, I still have some classmates in and then. Even up to five, ten years ago, I was still meeting classmates that I had not known while I was at the academy. So there's only about thousand people. So learn and meet as many as you can because you're never going to be together this close in this environment. Mm-hmm. Some people are like, "Yeah, I can't wait to leave. I'm <laughs> ready to get rid." But it's it's a you're you're grateful after the fact, and so expand your network. And then the more you do it here, the easier it is when you come on active duty. Mm-hmm. Well, Major General Trevino, it's been a pleasure. I really appreciate all the the nuggets that you've dropped on 
I as well as the cadets. So hopefully this gets a few listens. Thank you. Mm-hmm.